Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast. I'm Sarah Lohman. And I'm Jonathan Soma. And we are enjoying some ice-cold cocktails on a very, very hot and muggy Brooklyn, New York evening. But we're enjoying them 19th century style. We are. Mm. And uh, the magic of a 19th century style cocktail is not... Well, it is what's in the cocktail. Booze. But yes, there's booze. Um, but also how you drink it. Mm. So one of the things that got really popular that went through a revival in the mid-19th century was the straw, believe it or not. When ice became more readily available and cheaper, but it was also because certain cocktails were invented that featured ice, as well as fruit and mint and all kinds of organic matter, and to be able to drink cocktails like that, you needed a way to convey the cocktail to your lips. So we're drinking through 19th century straws, which are made from, well, we're using oat We're using straw. oat because that's what I found in the flower district but traditionally you use rye straws and we're testing them out today because the reason that these natural straws gave way to paper straws was that allegedly they lent the cocktail a kind of a grassy taste but they would also break down and become fibrous in your cocktail which was unpleasant but i don't know i'm enjoying mine so far yeah i think it's been just like a normal straw they're and effective sarah also has a paper straw in her cocktail and we're kind of doing battle to see which one is going to fall apart first i might drink my drink first before either of them fall apart we'll though. have to fill it with more cocktail or more water so later on i've got some more straw info plus some great quotes about someone um, being taught how to use a straw for the very first time but this whole hour is all about cocktails. cocktails a very american drink the history of as well as how you at home can become a better cocktailer with tips from Soma about shaken not stirred, the oh, ice cubes, ice cubes, the the have and have nots of ice. What are you talking about? Well, I so there's a book that I really love for American history, and it's Charles Dickens' American Notes. It's just a travel log. He came to America in 1842 and recorded what happened to him when he was here. What happens between the lines is sometimes even better than what he writes down. Like the fact that when he came, he was 30 and young and hot. And like women squealed. Like it was like the Beatles landing when Charles Dickens came. They would chop off locks of his hair and run away. And just like his perception of Americans when he got off the boat, like we just haven't changed. Like we were just loud and like he would sit down on trains and people would just stare at him from an inch away and be like, Oh, you're Charles Dickens, aren't you? And just both be totally infatuated, but also totally unimpressed. So it's this lovely journal about his time in America. And he would write about the bar. Because if you were a visitor to America in the early 19th century, you had to have a cocktail. Americans invented them. They were all the rage. And what he said about the bar is... The bar is a large room with a stone floor, and there people stand and smoke and lounge about all the evening, dropping in and out as the humor takes them. There, too, the stranger is initiated into the mysteries of the gin sling, cocktail, sangaree, mint julep, sherry cobbler, timber doodle, and other rare drinks. I want to drink a timber doodle. Oh, and here's the sad part. So what's so great about that phrase is Charles Dickens is one of the first people to pen some of the earliest drinks in American history. The cocktails, the idea of mixed drinks came about sometime at the end of the 18th century. People believe that what separates a cocktail from just drinking booze is uh, bitters. Bitters were early on medicinal 
quote unquote, uh, bitters are tinctures of herbs, roots, barks in infused into high proof alcohol. To this day, people still use things like Angostura, which was an introduced as like a, a tummy remedy. Right. To, people still use that to like settle their stomachs after dinner. Who does that? Uh, actually, in the Caribbean, like a lot of immigrants from the Caribbean have told me that their mothers would use like Angostura and tonic water. They would give it to them when they had a Do tummy you know ache. about the Angostura drink? Mm-mm. If you go into Crown Heights and you go into like roti restaurants, you will find people drinking straight up from a can Angostura drinks. And I haven't gotten a chance to like inspect the drinks. I Googled them on my phone while I was there to find a little bit about them. But it's Angostura is very much a part of the culinary culture there in, in the caribbean and i've never seen anything. i would have to try that but i've also women have also told me that they'll like shake it into soups and stews so it was introduced in the 1830s it was a, a patent medicine if you've ever you've heard of that i know yeah. like patent medicines meaning they were tonics that were advertised to cure all sorts of things and this was specifically like a stomach tonic so any kind of bitters that have survived for the 19th century they started out as medicines and they were seen as taking your medicines well people discovered that they were a lot better if you added them into alcohol and you might have noticed in that list of drinks that dickens mentioned he he lists all these different things like the timber doodle but he actually mentions this thing called a cocktail so before cocktail became this name for like a category of mixed drinks it was actually just a name for one mixed drinks and a cocktail is um, an alcohol plus bitters plus a little bit of sugar plus a little bit of water served room temperature you know, that's what I'm drinking right now. That's what you're drinking right now. No. What, what would you call that today? Like, if you order an old-fashioned today in a bar, what do you get? An old-fashioned? A new old-fashioned? Yeah, but what is, what is that? I don't know. Yes, you do. Not right now. It's, I need to drink more alcohol, clearly. It's usually whiskey mm -hmm. with fruits, muddled on the bottom, and probably some, like, bitters and stuff. Yeah. It is like a new old-fashioned. But that used to be a new drink 100 years ago. 100 years ago, if you ordered an old-fashioned, you got... A cocktail, meaning what you're drinking right now. Whiskey plus water plus sugar plus bitters. And the reasons why that was the popular thing to drink is because none of those ingredients will go bad. Oh. The alcohol stays good. The bitters stay good. The sugar stays good. The water stays good. Citrus only gets added later once we're able to ship citrus around the country. Um, same things with fruits and mint and all of that. Ice. Because otherwise, you're making a drink full of spoiled citrus and no one wants to drink that but also like by the end of the 19th century that's what your dad would have drank right and by the end of the 19th century people were drinking new old fashions but then that also went out out of vogue by the 1890s people drinking martinis that were getting kind of drier so it gets complicated and complicated so here's the thing that has to do with timber doodle too so most of these other drinks a ginseng a cocktail a sangria a sherry cobbler um, and a mint julep, we all know what those are. And most of those drinks were invented by the end of the 18th century and were definitely on the books by the 1820s. The only one we don't know what it is is a timber doodle. And it, scholars don't quite know where the term cocktail came from. A certain type of horse with a cropped tail was often called a cocktail. A certain type of like French soldier with a rooster feather in its hat could also be called a cocktail. But again, these are all legends that seem to have kind of been ugh, lost in time. And a timber doodle is a slang for a type of bird called a woodcock. So that might also have something to do with the term cocktail. But as far as what type of drink it might have been more specifically, nobody seems to know, sadly. 
because I would love to have a timber doodle as well. I'm going to open up a bar and I'm going to call it the, the timber, timber doodle. doodle. Perfect. I think the problem with the history of alcohol is that everybody seems to have been a little bit too drunk to remember to write anything down. So we don't actually know what happened. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about all these drinks is like, it, you, if you take the cocktail recipe and you add a little bit of nutmeg to it, you have a sling. That's your basic recipe, but you can add any kind of alcohol to it. You can put gin, you can put rum, you can put whatever. It doesn't matter. Unlike today, it's like specific drinks must have this type of alcohol in it. If you swap out the alcohol, everybody throws a fit. You can't have this type, you can't have this type. It has, it's so specific. The 19th century, it was the formula and you swapped out whatever kind of alcohol you wanted in it. It was a very, very different way of making drinks. So the original drinks were all kind of served room temperature. For a while they were seen as medicinal and it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that we got this swinging cocktail culture. So in the middle of the 19th century, ice becomes big. Ice becomes cheap. Mm -hmm. We cut it out of lakes in New England. Yes. We have ice houses built that can store ice all the way through the next October. Amazing. And so drinks with ice become popular. The first of which is the mint julep. I went to the Kentucky Derby for the first time this spring. There are vendors who walk around with trays full of juleps around their necks, which is awesome, but the juleps are better at home. They're kind of disgusting, actually, at the Derby. How much do they cost? Oh, like $11. Well, it's not so bad but it's like the cocktail at a sporting event. Exactly, but it's like the pre-mixed-in-a-bottle, mint-flavored, kind of grody. Not as good as what you make at home. Right. And the julep is an old drink. It was invented by the end of the 18th century. I mean, and even by the by the early 19th century, it was being noted to be as far north as New York City. They were serving at hotels, hotel bars here. Um, sometimes they'd call it a mint sling, too. But, oh, and this is such a great quote. So another English tourist, a man named Captain Marriott, recorded his experience with mint juleps after he came to America in 1837. Like any British tourist who explored America had to have a cocktail. He said, I once overheard two ladies talking in the next room to me. And one of them said, well, if I have a weakness for any one thing, it is for a mint julep, a very amiable weakness, improving her good sense and good taste. They are, in fact, like the American ladies, irresistible. I know, it's fucking hysterical, That's isn't amazing, it? Yeah. It's amazing. And the juleps, they are kissing cousin to mojito. So it's rye whiskey plus mint leaves plus, um, wait, rye whiskey, mint, sugar, ice. Mm -hmm. yeah. And mojito is rum, mint, plus um, lime juice. Actually, the original recipe was mistranslated and it says you put lemon in, which is actually refreshing. But lemon and lime coming from other countries, kind of the same thing a lot of the time. I mean, it's good. I made the mistranslated one. It's like delicious rum lemonade. Mm -hmm. But m difficult to pinpoint when the recipe was invented. It's not printed to the first time to the 20th century. It comes out of the Caribbean. But it's also kind of related to like a pirate drink that was in the Caribbean. But they seem to be really super closely related. Okay, so in the olden days, with the British Royal Navy, you had a rum ration whenever you were on a ship. Um, so every day you would get, depending upon the time, like a pint of rum or a half pint of rum or a quarter pint of rum. And they needed to dilute it down because otherwise people would save it over the course of days and then get rip-roaring drunk. Sure. And when you're trying to drive a boat on the ocean, <laughs> right. and it's the olden days, you kind of needed to have your head on straight. And if you got trashed, people really needed you to help drive the boat. Yes. So... What happened was the British Royal Navy, what you would drink was something called grog, 
which is four parts water to one part rum. So you couldn't really save it, and if you got incredibly drunk off of it, you were also drinking an incredible amount of water. Right. So it wasn't really, you know, a get drunk quick kind of drink. Now, pirates, on the other hand, got to drink something called bumbo. And bumbo is two parts rum to one part water with the addition of sugar and nutmeg. Mm -hmm. So if I had to choose between being in the British Royal Navy and being a pirate based solely on the cocktails that they were able to drink, I would definitely be a pirate and drink bumbo. Addition of sugar and nutmeg really does an amazing job. And with a shake of bitters, that's pretty much a rum sling. Like right. it's a pretty standard cocktail of the era too. And I'm sure they had bitters hanging out on board as well. And allegedly, like, the mojito came from something called, like, El Drac, which was, like, named after Francis Drake. And there's even something with originally maybe even came from unrefined, like, molasses plus lime plus horrible rum. But it's a little it's a little bit murky, but it seemed like that there was some connection between mint juleps and mojitos way back. And something that evolved slightly later, but is also similar, is the sherry cobbler. And a sherry cobbler is sherry and sugar, plus ice, plus tons of fruit, and sometimes, like, in-season fruit and sometimes mint. It's like the original strawberry daiquiri. It's like this really <laughs> fruity summer drink. And there's so much, like, shit in your glass that to drink it, you had to have a straw. Right. And so what made the drink popular is that, one, it's summer, it's New York, it is hot, and this is a cool, refreshing drink, and it's kind of sweet, but that also you would use the straw. And when Dickens came back to England, he wrote the book Martin Chuzzlewit. That's the novel that he wrote kind of based on his experiences in America. And he wrote this very epic part about the main character sitting down and having a sherry cobbler and using a straw for the first time. Are you ready? Go. Bring it. Here's my dramatic reading. So this is the bartender serving Martin Chuzzlewit with which he produced a very large tumbler piled up to the brim with little blocks of clear transparent ice through which one or two thin slices of lemon and a golden liquid of delicious appearance appeared from the still depths below to the loving eye of the spectator. Mr. Tapley plunged a reed into the mixture which caused a pleasant commotion among the pieces of ice and signifying by an expressive gesture that it was to be pumped up through that agency by the enraptured drinker. Martin took the glass with an astonished look, applied his lips to the reed, and cast up his eyes once in ecstasy. He paused no more until the goblet was drained to the last drop. This wonderful invention, sir, said Mark tenderly, patting the empty glass, is called a cobbler. Sherry cobbler when you name it long, cobbler when you name it short. So clearly Dickens was quite taken buy this drink and it's what made straws popular the reed straw at this time specifically which you know what mine still seems to be holding up rather Mine's well holding up very well as well can i say that i i believe i'm not a dickens expert but it yeah. seems to be the only part of america that he actually did approve of the cocktails because he was pretty condemning of mm. american things as a whole I mean, I think he was kind of charmed by us as a people. He liked our kind of loud, rowdy upstartness. Like, we as a people were exactly the same. We were also disgusting in some ways. We had a horrible chewing tobacco problem in the 19th century. 
he, there's this part where he goes to visit the president, which you can just do. You can just show up, anybody. And the waiting room is just covered in chewing tobacco spit. And it is repulsive. But, you know, he's British, so he's a little taken aback. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to wait and see what my straw does. And, I mean, it's the straw revival in the 19th century. But do you know straws actually go back to the Sumerians? No. Yeah. Oh, wait, I do know this. It's because when they brewed their beer, totally. they didn't strain anything. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, filthy's not the word for it. There was like chaff from the grain that would sit on top of the beer. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so they needed straws, you're right. Yeah, because otherwise they're going to get a mouthful of chaff. <laughs> Nobody Don't. wants a mouthful Nobody of chaff. Nobody wants that, no. So they would make them, they make them out of reeds, but archaeologists also found gold and lapis lazuli straws. I cannot imagine making a straw out of lapis lazuli. Granted, They're I'm not beautiful. like a Sumerian king, but that's incredible. And then they were revived with the cocktail culture of the 19th century. Yeah, Marvin Stone in 1888 was drinking mint julep and got pissed off at his grass straw. And he's the one he took paper and wrapped it around and like used glue to hold it and invented the artificial sipper is what he called it <laughs> which is the name that i love and then early in the 20th century they became popular with soda fountains because they were seen as like sanitation as we know was a big thing in the early 20th century and so having disposable straws was a big thing but like for little kids it's hard to have the straight straw they spill their drinks you know because they're tiny so a father is watching his little girl having trouble with her milkshake, and so he inserted a screw into the paper straw and then put the divots in so the straw would bend. And then invented the bendy straw. Did he patent that and become a gazillionaire? Yes, they both patented their straws. That was in the 1930s. They both became gazillionaires. And now, like, of course, our landfills are filled with plastic straws. So I'm predicting a revival of the original natural straw. Actually, Muji had a design competition a couple years ago and the straw straw won the design. I know, but I haven't seen it at Muji. I don't know what to tell you. I would I would say they should come back in terms of fancy cocktails in an appeal to authenticity and an appeal to history by saying this was a flavor that contributed to the original cocktails. I'm and when surprised. we drink this now, this this pure unadulterated drink is yep. not part of the cocktail experience the authentic cocktail experience rather having a slowly decomposing <laughs> piece of grass in your drink is the authentic experience but it's not like there's a lack of rye there's plenty of rye whiskey around and straw by the way is not like the top part that's being used necessarily for animal food or for the grain part it's the waste product that's used for bedding for the most part so like for a rye straw and industry to exist for fancy cocktail bars in manhattan like it's only helping out farmers right all right so i'm putting that idea out there if i were more of an entrepreneur i would make this happen and I'm not exactly lazy, I'm just unqualified. So, if you're an entrepreneur and you would like to partner with me in the rye straw business, you can contact me at the web address below, some, <laughs> somewhere, fourpoundsflower.com, whatever. Do you want me to talk about uh, Jerry Thomas before we move on? Or do you have something you want to say? Well, I love Jerry Thomas because of the blue blazer. The blue blazer. The Jerry Thomas, sure... He was very important in terms of cocktails. Sure, he might have invented a ton of cocktails. Sure, he might have popularized. Right. He like he published the first well, cocktail well, cookbook. Let me just say briefly who he was and what set him apart. Sure. Because I don't want to talk about anything but the Blue Blazer either. So, 
what's odd about the 18th and 19th century is that we know the names of very very few bartenders i mean today you could you could google on your google machine and find the names of thousands of bartenders but for all the the, the handful of names we have of cocktails from the early 19th century and late 18th centuries we have the names of maybe a handful of bartenders even though they were giants in their times and really the only person we know a lot about this is this guy jerry thomas and the reason we know anything about him is because in the 1860s he decided to write a book about cocktails. He's the first one to do it because cocktail recipes up until that point were seen as highly proprietary. Uh, you didn't give away your secrets because that was giving away your business. People were going to copycat from you. And Jerry Thomas saw it as the opposite of that. If I write this down that is only going to make me all the more famous and he was totally totally right. So in 1862 he writes the Bon Vivant's Companion which is the very first cocktail guide ever known in America and tons and tons and tons of recipes. It makes him very famous so that he at one point is making a hundred dollars a week which is more than the president of the United States is making and he's got like a diamond pin that he wears and two pet rats that climb up and down his arms and he's just this huge character as many bartenders were but he was the most famous and he was the most famous for this drink he invented called the Blue Blazer. Which is really just like a hot toddy, hot it's, whiskey toddy. Yeah, if there's a performance aspect to it, though. Right. And the performance aspect to it was he had two mugs. Right. Have you ever made it? No, because it's impossible no, to it's make. No, it's not. You have two mugs. I've done it. Have... And you light one of them on fire. Listen. You light the alcohol on fire and you throw it from arms outstretched. Listen, what from scholars one, don't... From one on. hand to the other and the fire shoots through the air in a yeah. blaze of blue flame yes and lands into the cup on the other side in without one spilling cup, a drop you have warmed water in the other cup you have overproof whiskey okay and it both have to be slightly warm and you light the whiskey on fire and you pour them back and forth pouring them back and forth is not the same thing as the wonderful images that now you that's have the seen thing you see the drawings he, of it fly over his and the head. descriptions of it and there is this continuous flow of fire back and forth and it's not just with the blue blazer but there seems to be at least from images and descriptions a method of mixing cocktails in the 19th century that has yet been undiscovered in which the the drinks are poured back and forth between two glasses in a way that it looks like it is one continuous cycle of liquid and no one has been able to figure out how to do it he's a magic man not and just this... him but lots of bartenders were able to do it and it's all a little mysterious it was such an impressive feat that ulysses s grant saw him making a blue blazer and gave jerry thomas a cigar so despite the fact that Jerry Thomas was making more money than him probably at that time. Probably. It is probably a pretty good indicator of how awesome you are if the president of the United States of America and a highly decorated general gives you a cigar. Do not try this at home, but even without whatever mysterious technique that is, pouring fire back and forth between two mugs, seriously awesome. I've done it a couple times. Practice with water first. Not that you're going to do this at home because you maybe promise that you weren't. But it's seriously awesome. It, is, it made the flames are blue, which is why it's called the Blue Blazer. And then in the end, you pour it into a... You, you don't let it go too long because you want to burn all the alcohol out. And you pour it into a glass and you put a little, like, lemon peel twist in it. And then it's good for a 
for a cold night in winter. He would only make the drink if it was under 50 degrees outside or if you were sick. Mm. Because it would alleviate your, you know, your Fear cold ails, symptoms. Yeah. But uh, these days, the American Lung Association no longer endorses them as a cold treatment because it did alcohol. One time? Yes, it did okay. at one time. Um, but nowadays, because alcohol dehydrates you, mm. you should not have blue blazers specifically for when you're feeling under the weather. You heard it here first. Blue blazers cures the common cold. That's science. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, uh, all right, all I've done is ramble about cocktails from 100 years ago or more. So that's not really helping you make a cocktail today. Although if you want to try any of the drinks that I've talked about, if you go to fourpoundsflower.com, if you do a little search on my website, all the recipes, including the Blue Blazer, which you're not going to try, they're all up there, the cocktail, the gin sling, mint juleps, and the sherry cobbler. You can try them all at home. But Soma's going to teach you how to make some 20th century cocktails better. Some science, some well, technique. So speaking of things being cold, what what magic thing do you use to cool down your cocktails? Ice. Ice, right? Have yeah. you ever tried to use whiskey cubes, I think they call them? Those like beautiful granite stones that you put in your drink. Yes, yes, I do. I have some in my freezer. Okay, so the problem with whiskey stones is they exist because you don't want to dilute your drink. You say, when my drink got made, it was perfect. Anything I add to my drink in terms of water is going to be watering it down. It's not going to be as good. I want it to stay cold, but I want it to stay as strong. All right, let me, let me break down some science here. So when you put a whiskey stone, which is basically just a granite stone, into your drink, what you are doing is there's a cold gradient in the whiskey stone that's been in the freezer and there's a warm gradient in your alcohol and your alcohol your drink kind of absorbs some of the cold from the whiskey stone and gets maybe a little bit colder helps it stay at the same temperature sure that works it's fine but ice has this magic thing called the heat of fusion Holy shit. Right? And there's also the heat of solution, which is why xylitol candy tastes cold when you put it in your mouth. But the secret to ice... Refer to our candy podcast. Yeah, find our candy podcast. It's a good one. So when you have ice cubes, when you have a state change, shall we say, if it goes from solid to a liquid, if you think about a solid in terms of being a state of matter, everything's very rigid, everything's very firm... And then when it goes to be a liquid, everything's much more spread apart, everything's very fluid, there's a lot more energy in there. As you go through that state change from being solid to liquid, you have to absorb a ton of extra energy from your environment as water, as ice, in order to make that change. So the one degree difference between, say, being a 32 degree frozen block of ice and a 33 degree vat of water is not just the difference of one degree. The amount of energy that is absorbed by the ice by making that one degree change is as much energy as it takes to go from freezing to boiling mm. with liquid water. So it's not the coldness of the ice that is actually cooling your drink but rather the melting of the ice that is cooling your drink. 
So you can't just put anything cold in your drink. I mean, it'll keep it colder, or it won't keep it colder. If you put something cold in your drink, sure, your drink might stay cold, but it won't work for very long because it's not absorbing as much energy as melting ice does when it melts. So in order to get cold, you have to have a little bit of melting. Deal with it. But also a little bit of water in your drink is nice. Well, here's the thing. If you're real picky about how much water you put into, say, your whiskey, when whiskey comes out of a barrel, it's 80 proof. When you get it served to you, it's 40 proof. Get or 40, 40% alcohol uh, was 80% alcohol. Guess what that other 60% is made out of? Water. Water. So when you're adding water to alcohol, they say that it disrupts the volatile uh, aroma molecules at the surface and allows things to come up into your nose. I'll put quotes around and say maybe that's true. But generally, don't be a dick about putting water into your drinks because there's a ton of water in there anyway and it doesn't make any difference. And if you actually want to taste the difference between, say, like a rye whiskey and a bourbon, which have very different flavor profiles, what you should do is dilute the drink down about five parts with water, taste them separately. So instead of tasting the burn of the alcohol, you're tasting nothing but the flavors of the alcohols inside of them. Do you really do that? Yeah, I absolutely do. One of my really? favorite drinks is diluting down whiskey about four parts and then putting a little bit of bitters in it. Mm. Yeah, it's like having a beer that tastes more exciting than a beer and isn't as sweet. Mm. All right, so if we're going to use ice, as we've decided, because ice is the best, if you go to a fancy cocktail bar, what is the ice going to look like that they give you? Ooh, they love, they get the big block, just like in the old time days. Like, they cut it out of a lake you know yes. back then yeah it's true that's what they did like they cut it out of a lake in massachusetts and then your old-timey bartender like takes an ice pick and like carves a block and then he'll form like a ball or a cube right and it goes in your drink and then he gives it to you so you have a, an ice cube that's probably about as big as a glass that it's in right with small amounts of alcohol around it right and then you drink that yeah and it's better than small ice because it's going to water it down less it's going to keep it cold better all those sorts of things that they say I, it looks better you gotta tell me it look, it, at the very least it's pretty it does look nice and in the end if you're spending 14 dollars on a cocktail maybe that's a pretty important part of it but if we're keeping our drink cold I'm being arrested. <laughs> I'm sorry, Shit. everybody. Sad. So when you have ice in water, what is the process by which it cools your drink? Um, well, you told me. Well, yeah, what did I tell you? You told me that when that layer of ice melts, it doesn't take one degree. It takes all the degrees from, from freezing to boiling. Yeah, so it's the process of melting that is what's keeping your ice cold. It's yeah. not the fact that the ice is cold. Right. It's not the fact small ice, big ice, whatever. It's all that energy. It's only the melting process that keeps it cold. Yeah. So for a given amount of ice or a given amount of alcohol, in order to keep it at a constant temperature, all you need is a certain amount of melting. So whether that melting comes from big ice or whether that melting comes from small ice, it doesn't matter 
because no matter what's going on, you need, say, one gram of ice to melt to keep your water or to keep your alcohol as cold as it needs to be for you to want to drink it. And it might come from the outside of a huge thing of ice, or it might come from a bunch of tiny little ice cubes, but one is not going to end up diluting your drink more because melting is not a function of surface area when you have a drink. It's simply a function of keeping your drink cold. Hmm. So once it reaches a certain temperature, the ice won't melt anymore. Yes, the, the ice will either melt from a ton of different points all at once or from few points over a longer period of time. But no matter what's happening, the amount of dilution is going to be the same as long as it's the same amount of alcohol, even if it's a ton of ice or even if it's a small amount of ice. So if you were crafting the perfect cocktail with ice, what would it look like? Whatever you want it to look like. The no, only I'm well, you. okay. Here's the thing. Here's the tricks, though. There's there's some caveats to that. There's a little couple asterisks. Number one, the dilution can also be affected by water that is clinging to the outside of your ice cubes. Mm -hmm. So if I have a bunch of tiny ice cubes, there's more surface area than mm -hmm. if I have one big ice cube, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even if in the end it's the melting that's keeping the drink the same. There is a ton more of tiny, tiny drops of water hanging on the outside of that, of the small ice cubes versus the one big ice cube. Because the big ice cube has less surface area for water droplets to cling to. The smaller ice has more surface area for water droplets to cling to. So when you put it into the drink, the immediate dilution is affected by the size of the ice. Mm. So the small ice actually does dilute it a little bit more, but that's just water clinging to the outside of the ice. On the other hand, when you have a big ice cube, how much of that ice cube is in contact with the water? Like, two thirds. Yeah, two thirds, if that. If you've consumed a little bit of it, like a half, one quarter, what is that ice cooling down then? Sky. The fucking atmosphere. Yeah, so it's, it's, you, it's air conditioning for the bar because that big hunk of ice is pointing up out of your drink, just cooling the air around you. So it's bleeding out all this extra water that could be used that melting could be used to cool your drink but instead it's being used to cool the air around it what if we made a cocktail glass that was like a tray and the ice sat in it like a tray you could do that that would work out well um unfortunately i think you might lose out on the aromatics when you go to drink it unless there's a like a certain spout on the end of the tray <laughs> no it's just like it's got this intense surface area and you can just you can like use your hands to waft the aromatics let's make a bar yep we'll have a trough in it and there will just be a drink of the night we'll put it in the trough and it'll have a really big ice cube running the length of the trough yeah great done sounds like a good idea and we're gonna call it timber doodles yeah yeah done great. great and you have to drink out of reed straws yes and then will our cocktails be shaken or stirred okay here's the thing have you ever shaken and stirred and compared how it goes well it depends on what ingredients go in so i've heard yes that's true but my favorite thing is the science part. How'd that make you so my, sad? Because the science part is the best part. The, All right, tell me. What is the point of putting ice in a drink? To make it cold. Yeah. Does one of those do a better job at making it cold? Right? See the question? There's a big question mark above your head because you don't know. So. Well, there's this technique I learned called the hard shake. And the hard shake was originated by this guy in Japan. 
Anyway, it's this fancy cocktail shaking technique where you get these really tiny pieces of ice in this really frothy drink, and the drink gets super, super, super cold. The hard shake. Look it up. You Basically, see... all shakes are created equal. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, Maybe not so. in terms of frothing things up, but in terms of getting things cold, you have ice in there. You're shaking it around. You're okay. But things get, when, like, when I make a julep, though, I stir. But again, like, I'm not thinking about it in terms of the science. I'm thinking it, like, traditionally, the rule is when you're cocktailing is that if I need to really, is where I want to amalgamate something? Sure. Like, if I have an egg, I'm going to, I'm really going to shake it up, right? Yes, yeah, because if, when you're shaking up an egg, what you're doing is you are denaturing all of the proteins, so you're, you're basically pulling apart all the proteins, and then they get kind of stuck together and take up more space so that then you can have these large bubbles in your egg-based drinks that you can't get through stirring. Creamy, frothy, it's important to the consistency of the drink. But yes. if I have something like mint, I'm not shaking that drink. I'm not bruising that mint. There's a certain flavor that you're trying to get out of that mint that you're not, you don't want from beating the crap out of that plant. You but you stir muddle it. that mint anyway. Well, so... there's a big, dip. Harold McGee has some things to say about muddling mint. Uh -oh. You can look that up. Okay. In general, you're supposed to stir things like that mm -hmm. uh citrus too you're supposed to stir as opposed to shake sure because like, the the citrus ends up making the drink cloudy if you shake it right but dairy you're supposed to be shaking too right but there's one big thing beyond the aesthetics of the drink uh or with the texture of the drink which are really the two points that you get between shaking versus stirring. aesthetics texture it's, yeah yeah um and that is actually how cold it gets yeah okay so i ran an experiment where i took some ice and I put, uh, I made, I made a cocktail, but I think it actually might have taken water or a water alcohol mix, thrown in a bunch of ice cubes and then stirred it around. How long do you generally stir a drink whenever you're making a cocktail, if you're stirring it? Personally. Personally. And again, I'm not using a thermometer. I stir a drink until there's condensation on the outside of the glass. Okay. That's fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not going to take, it's not like minutes of stirring. No, it's probably 30 seconds. Right. So what I did was I stirred it for two and a half minutes. Shit. Right. So that's that's a long time. Uh, it got down to negative four degrees Celsius. Mm, that's cold. After two and a half minutes. So it was a long time of stirring and it got pretty cold. The reason why it can get below freezing is because there's alcohol in there and the alcohol right. isn't going to freeze. So generally, if you are a normal person and you're stirring for, you know, 30 seconds a minute, you'll probably get it down to about zero degrees. You're not going to go all the way down to negative four. You're going to get down to zero. It's still pretty cold. That's a pretty cold drink. It's not just chilled. That is freezing degrees. Right. So then you can shake it. So what I did was I took the same amount of alcohol and water and ice and I shook it for about 15 to 20 seconds because the idea goes that you can't if you shake it more than that you're not adding any sort of coldness mm. what you should normally do is shake until you can't hold on to it comfortably anymore the shaker is so cold the right. shaker's gotten so cold that your hand is starting to feel frostbitten and then you have to remove your hand by shaking it for 15 seconds, I got down to negative 5.8 degrees Celsius. So it's not only colder, but colder faster. Yes, colder faster. So instead of getting down to zero degrees, which is what you get for stirring for about 30 seconds, if you shake it for 15 seconds, negative 6 degrees Celsius. Hmm. So it gets much, much colder, much, much faster. 
the big question ends up being if you are doing this shaking and it's getting so much colder does it dilute the drink more mm-hmm. and the answer is yes because as we learned the reason why drinks get cold is because ice melts now in order to get that extra negative six degrees celsius it is caused by ice melting so if you need a drink to not have it's as much water in it you would want to stir it as opposed to shaking it or you could just shake it for maybe one second and then it would still get cold enough um, without having all of that ice melt but as we also learned because the temperature difference or the the energy absorbed by melting water is so much more than just what you would think uh, it doesn't there's not that much more melting that goes on when you shake it than when you stir it so it really ends up being nothing but texture and aesthetics and then also maybe you want the drink to be really cold i'm not sure drinks that are best served very very cold depends they're, on the they're day probably out there yes it's true so if it is summertime shake all of your drinks and so your guests hard. will be so happy it'll be a little bit more watered down you'll need that extra water though because you're sweating and then you also need that extra you know negative six degrees celsius and also just in case you're not good at the conversion between celsius and fahrenheit uh we're talking a difference between like 32 degrees fahrenheit for stirring for about 30 seconds or a minute going down to about 21 degrees fahrenheit if you shake for 15 seconds if you could have any cocktail made any way right now what would you what would you want my favorite cocktail is called a soli sombra mm. and it's equal parts anisette and brandy mm. and it i believe i learned about it in an ernest hemingway book and it's named after in a bullfighting ring you have three different kinds of seats you have seats that are in the sun soul seats mm. you have seats that are in the shade sombra seats and you have soli sombra which over the course of the day move from being sun to shade and it has 50% anisette, which is light, 50% brandy, which is dark. And you put them together and it's sun and the, and the shade. It's delicious. It takes kind of like a, a good and plenty that's made out of alcohol. It's delicious. You know those uh, like giant frozen daiquiris that you can get in Las Vegas? Yes. That's what I want. All right. I mean, is it just right now or just all the time? Right now. Okay, that's pretty good. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, this has been the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast, and we will talk to you about more things. Food, science, history in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.